I'm Yasi Salik, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Friday, September 30th. The 48th season of Saturday Night Live premieres tomorrow night, and Lauren Michaels recently told the New York Times that this is a, quote, year of reinvention. Eight cast members are gone, including longtime stars A.D. Bryant, Kate McKinnon, Kyle Mooney, Craig Sky, Pete Davidson, along with other newer cast members like Alex Moffat, Melissa Villasenor, Chris Redd, and someone named Aristotle Athari, who I wouldn't know if he was sitting right next to me in the subway. That's kind of been the problem the past few seasons. The cast has ballooned to 24 people, way too many. It's partly COVID. People couldn't leave, and they needed a big cast in case anyone tested positive. But it's also because SNL has kind of drifted away from its initial not-ready-for-primetime players. There were only seven of them. It's harder for people to break out these days, become a fixture, become a legitimate star. There are other reasons for that, but the lack of airtime on SNL when they're there is a big reason. Because there's been no better launchpad to stardom in America over the past 50 years than SNL. Think about it. Many of your favorite comedy people trace their careers back to them, even people who weren't big on SNL when they were there, like Chris Rock or Julia Louis-Dreyfus or Larry David. There's four new featured players hoping to make that happen this year, bringing the total cast to about 17. Still too many, but this is a reinvention of sorts. To discuss all things SNL, I asked one of the most knowledgeable SNL people I know, the one and only Bill Simmons. People don't realize, with all the other things he's know- he knows about, uh, he's actually extremely knowledgeable about SNL. Thus, this episode is probably one of the longest we've done. I know we pride ourselves on being short, but I promise you, it's worth it. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with the man, Bill Simmons, the founder of TheRinger.com and the patron saint of all podcasts on The Ringer Podcast Network and a SNL super fan. You know more about SNL than I think probably anyone in the world, maybe Jim Miller, who wrote the book and interviewed everybody, but you have incredible knowledge of the history of, of SNL, so I wanted to have you in today. This is supposedly, according to Lord Michaels, a year of reinvention. 
Do you think, do you agree with him? Do you think that this show is actually reinventing itself? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's interesting that he was acknowledging there are real problems. I think Jim Miller is a bigger historian than I am, but I, I'm definitely like in well, the top Well, he's done like 3,000 interviews. Yeah. I mean, you haven't done that. <laughs> I'm in the top five, though, because this show came on when I was a kid, and I started, I was able to catch up because they were running on primetime, the half hour greatest hits from the first couple seasons. And mm -hmm. then the fifth season with Bill Murray when he was the star, that was when every year after I've seen every episode. And Do you agree that, that the Bill Murray coming in for Chevy Chase is the seminal moment. This is when it's, it's like when Scientology passed on from L Ron Hubbard to David Miscavige. It's not the original star that matters. It's the ability to have a second leader. And the fact that they had Bill Murray come in for Chevy Chase made it. So this show was going to last forever. So I would disagree with that. I think Eddie Murphy was the seminal moment because I think if he wasn't Eddie Murphy, the show gets canceled. Well, Brandon Tartikoff, in 85, Brandon Tartikoff at NBC wanted to cancel the show. But I think they would have canceled on 81 or 82. I think, I think if they didn't have him, he was the only reason people watched for three years. And he became right. one of the biggest stars in the world, TV or movie or both. Like, And it became the Eddie Murphy show, really. Right. And I think, I really think it was gone. Like, they had Fridays was a challenger uh, at that point on ABC. And just in general, the show just wasn't cool anymore. And Eddie, like single-handedly saved it. So the show's, it hit rock bottom that first Eddie Murphy season when they didn't use him. So that was the sixth season. Um, when they tried to reinvent it, when Lauren came back and it was a whole new cast. And that that season was pretty, I think, not uh, respected or liked. Even though it had Robert Downey Jr. and Joan Cusack, who went on to do amazing things, they, they will never be known for their SNL stuff. No, they had Randy Quaid. Right. They had John Lovitz's first year. Um, they had Terry Sweeney, who was the first gay person on the show, and and he played Nancy Reagan. And um, but it wasn't a very good season. But coming out of that, the next year is when they reinvented it, and all right. of a sudden you get Phil Hartman and Dana Carvey. So that was the one. And then that the Will Ferrell season, I think, was probably the second most important save the show season because right. I think the show was ready to get canceled, and they struck oil with Will Ferrell. And Spade in America was really helpful, I think, that year because he was still kind of something and Tommy Boy was out in the theaters and then they hit on a couple cast members. So that was fine. And then this is probably the next one, like this season, this is Matt, this is the first time I think since 95 that they're opening the season without a real star. And you could say like, Oh, well, Keenan Thompson's a star. It's like, well, is he like, he just right. had a sitcom Yang, that got canceled. Not really. Bone Yang is like, was in bros for two scenes. Like <laughs> they don't have a star. Like, and they didn't have one in 95 and Will Ferrell within 10 episodes became a star. Right. And I think they have to go back to the star making business and we can go in all the reasons for it. But, um, the show really got away from what it was. Once the cast started swelling up, the show lost its identity. There's just not enough time to both feature, new performers and break them through and then also get everyone on the show. So like, it's basically like a basketball team where you're playing 15 guys. It's stupid. Yeah. No, 24 people in the cast is way too many. And I, oh think my Lauren, God. I mean, Lauren did this interview with the New York times where he basically acknowledged that he was saying, you know, it was COVID people couldn't leave because there were no jobs. I mean, the other thing he didn't say is that he was terrified that they would come down with a COVID outbreak and they would not be able to put on a show. 
So he had this huge cast. He also started letting people go off and do other shows where, you know, A.D. Bryant would do shill for a few months and then come back. Kate McKinnon wasn't even on for the first few episodes of the last season. And it's just like it became this rotating ensemble in a way that I think the show got away from what we love about it, which is you get to see stars being made on the ground floor. Yeah. And they, the flip side of this is that the ratings are still really good. So the show is almost succeeding in spite of itself. I think, you know, th two things have happened. One is they, they, they went against what worked in the past, which was smaller casts, right? And the first time that happened, it was the uh, season 39, the 2012-13 season, because they knew they had some people leaving. Mm -hmm. And you had 10 cast members and four featured players. So they had 14 at that point. Um, and one of the featured players, the four featured players, they were A.D. Bryant, Kate McKinnon, Tim Robinson, Cecily Strong. It's a pretty good draft class, right? Totally. Tim Robinson never gets run on the show. Tim Robinson, for people under 35, is like a comedy god because of his Netflix series. Right. They had him. He was on the show, and, and it's pretty rare. You can't go through the first 35 seasons of SNL and point to three people that they blew it on. And they blew it on him. So I, I think once you have well, the they swollen blew it cast. On, they blew it on Julie Louis-Dreyfus. They blew it on Larry Davis. Two. Sarah Silverman. Chris Rock. I don't know. I No, but I see, I don't think they blew it on Chris Rock. Chris really? Rock was what he was on that show. I don't think he was a very good sketch performer. He could play a couple good things. That's it. He went to In Living Color. He didn't really do well on that show either. It wasn't until his 97 comedy special that he became Chris Rock. He was fine on SNL. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was great. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, they blew it. Like, that's like, oh my God. Larry David... Everybody yeah. talks about he couldn't get a sketch on the show. Right. I don't did they blow it on him or was it the wrong show for him? I don't know this for a fact. I'm assuming he was a total asshole. <laughs> well, well, probably was. I'll tell you another guy I think they blew it on, and this is a good example of what we're talking about is I think Chris Red should have been a way bigger star. Agreed. Um I think Agreed. he could play every especially like with like SNL's always supposed to represent the culture. And the culture, really for the last 15, 20 years, the mainstream culture, hip hop. And well, he has a great Kanye. Yeah, that's like that's and he was he could play basically everybody and he was so crucial to the show. And, and there would be episodes where he was on once. And I, I never understood that. Well, the show doesn't have a great track record with black comics, although it's getting better. No, it does not. So they betray it with the swollen cast. And then the other thing they betrayed was how long people stay. And if you go, you just look at the best performers ever, right? Everyone in the 70s and 80s is five years or less. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Phil, Har Phil Hartman was eight. Dana Carvey, seven. Hater was eight. Will Ferrell was seven. Wig, Rudolph, and uh, Sandberg and Polar were all seven. Mike Myers was six. Kate McKinnon was 11. <laughs> A.D. Bryant, who wasn't even a star, she stayed for 10 years. Did we need A.D. Bryant for a decade? Like, right. you got to keep it moving. Like, it's... It's like high school. You got to leave. Let the freshmen and the sophomores come up and the show stopped doing that. And I think that's a big reason they haven't been able to create a new star. And I, and the fact that Lauren relaxed his rule about doing other things, I think is a major shift because it used to yeah. be that the, this is what you did. You were on SNL and then you got to a place in your career where you left SNL and some people made it, some people didn't, but that was the progression. Now, I mean, Keenan's had a sitcom launch air and be canceled and he's still on snl it's ridiculous that keenan's still on the show and i think we all like keenan but he's been on the show 20 years like right. at some point you have so many people and even like the people i just mentioned 
Farrell stayed a year too long. His last year, it was like, all right, we've we he's kind of done everything he could shoot. It's time go make movies, Will Farrell. Go to the mm-hmm. next thing. Uh, Hartman was another one. He stayed a year too long. Carvey probably left at the right time. Mike Myers, 100% stayed a year too long, but usually it's between five and seven years. I think Hater really felt it the last year and was like, I gotta, I gotta start testing myself creatively. Um, Lauren's always talked about this. If you read the books and even like the podcast I did with them and some other interviews he's done about initially when the people come in, they just want, they want to do the show. All they want to do, they can't believe they made it. And they're all about the show. How can I make the show better? And then eventually once they get people in their life and they get agents and managers and they get offers, opportunities, the seesaw kind of shifts. And by season, maybe five, it's about you're the star and you're almost doing the show a favor by being on it. And once that dynamic shifts, I think it's really hard to stay. And I I think, you know, Kate being on the show for 11 years to me is, is a big reason why they haven't developed a star because she's just grabbing grabbing opportunities and sketches from other people. The other thing we didn't mention, I mean, there's a couple other factors, but like using celebrities and old cast members to come right. in and pivotal sketches, yeah. that's a disaster. Like imagine if they had done that in, in the 2000 election and instead of having Will Ferrell play George Bush, they brought back Dana Carvey as George Bush. And now right. Will Ferrell doesn't get to be George Bush. That was such a crucial part of his arc on SNL. And they took that from cast members. They had... Taryn Killam do Trump. And then it didn't quite work. And next thing you know, Alec Baldwin's there. And I think that it was like a ratings addiction. They couldn't yeah. quit it because everyone was like, oh, Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin, great. And then who's next? Oh my God, it's Matt Damon as Kavanaugh. Oh, Ben Stiller's on now. It's like, Melissa McCarthy is doing, you know, uh, the press secretary. They could not quit the celebrity thing once they started. And I was happy they got away from that last season. They were addicted to the press they got from the celebrity stuff. And this is another issue that that's happened with the show the last 15 years. They got really addicted to ovations from the studio audience <laughs> and somebody walking on. And I, I always felt like the pivotal moment was, and really the pivotal moment for the show in a lot of ways was when Tina Fey was doing the Sarah Palin impersonations, right? And they were great and they were skewing her. And then as a ratings move, they had Sarah Palin stroll on and they basically had double Sarah Palin's and everybody went nuts. They were never the same after that yeah. because- Because Tina was not on the show at the time. No, and they're right. supposed to be parroting these people, you know? And that's part of what made the show great was the celebrity impersonations and kind of being not uh, not tied to the celebrity, but a little bit, detached and the show's not detached at all anymore to celebrities. So when they make fun of people, it's always good natured. Like remember Gwyneth Paltrow, I think she did a Sharon Stone impersonation when she hosted in the late Mm -hmm. nineties and it was awesome. Um, She crushed it. There was another one I, somebody did, I think, man, Christina Aguilera did Sarah Jessica Parker. They did a sex in the city Mm -hmm. sketch and she had like this giant fake nose and they just like skewered the show they would never do stuff like that now. So the show's a lot less mean. I guess it has to be, and maybe that's what fits into the culture, but I also think that's it's too celebrity-friendly, in my opinion. Well, it, it's part of the entire celebrity industrial complex, which we've talked about on this show, that has become very friendly to celebrities because they have their own outlets. 
Well, and they can fire back. They can fire back immediately, and they can get more attention for when they fire back on social media. But they also don't need to do SNL. I mean, it's it's a pain in the ass to go there for a week. Some people love it, keep coming back, and they're great at it. You know, John Hamm or Mulaney or yep. people like that. But you, if you are big star X, you don't have to do SNL anymore as part of your movie rollout. And if they're going to be dicks to you, then maybe you're not. Or more importantly, if they're going to be dicks to your publicist or your agent, that that they need that pipeline going forward. Well, I'm not against the the old cast members and the celebrities, for the record. Like, if you're going to do that, that's fine. Like, that, there's ways to make that work. But then you can't also have a 20 person cast. Like, right. there's basically what? There's six sketches. There's two weekend update spots, and there's maybe one tape. Sp- piece you know if you're thinking about it like a basketball game you know in basketball like eight or nine guys can play and three people are the best guys in the team and then everybody else is a role player and that's usually how snl works when it's at its best if you're bringing in celebrities and old cast members to grab like one of those six sketches how are you supposed to develop stars and again i think they had people that could have been stars. Tim Robinson should have been a huge star in the show. Yeah. And I think Chris Red should have too. I really like uh, Melissa Villasenor. I thought she was really talented. Yep. And as somebody like, the question is like, if if Kristen Wiig was on, if you took 2006 Kristen Wiig in a time machine and put her on the show three years ago, would she become a star? I don't think so. I don't think Amy Poehler would have either. There was enough time to break them as stars. And what they do a lot now, and and you can see the writers sort of flexing to include people, is they do a lot of these sketches that are set up as, you know, they're going to do a TikTok parody where it's a bunch of people on TikTok that have 20 seconds each to do their thing. Or it's a beauty pageant where 15 people come out and they have their one joke. And they're doing that. It's almost like they're at a summer camp and everybody's got to have a participation trophy for the theater group. Like, there's no chance for these people to have that star-making moment like Kristen Wiig with the Target lady or Molly Shannon with, you know, the Catherine girl. And that's a weird sketch. But she needed the time to develop it for herself. And you don't see that with a lot of these people. Chloe Fineman's a perfect example. She's super talented. Yeah. And you see her used in little one-offs where she'll do her celebrity impression. But that's not enough to make a star. Yeah, I remember... The first season they really started doing that. They had, I'm looking up, it's I guess the 9091 season. So season 17. They still had the Dana Carvey, Hartman, Hooks, Victoria Jackson, Dennis Miller, Mike Myers, Kevin Neal, and like that group. And they had Chris Farley and Meadows and Chris Rock and Julia Sweeney. But then they also had Adam Sandler and Schneider and Spade. And they just had a lot of people. And they started doing those big sketches. And I remember they did one of my favorite ones was the Brady Bunch meets the Partridge family. And they were able to work everyone in. It was like, for people our age, it was like an iconic sketch. It was Mm -hmm. so good. But I also think that's informed these decisions going forward where it's like, how do we get 14, 15 people? Is it like, you know, an award show? Or is one of the ones they always do is the audition one where it's like all these different people auditioning for the Star Wars horror movie, you know, and then it's, and everybody gets to do an impression. they, the stuff that, that, you know, the SNL, the the people who have been on the show, they always love the 10 to one spot. And anyone I ever had on my podcast, I had a lot of people, especially back in the day on my podcast talking about the show. And they always loved the 10 to one, one sketch because that was always the weirdest, craziest sketch. And it was a real sketch. It was like what they grew up with, whether they did Groundlings or one of the other ones. 
And they've gotten away from that too. And I, Well, there's no such thing as 10 to 1 for most people no. who watch the show now. I watch it on Sunday mornings. Well, I wonder if, does that hurt the show though, that people, you can watch the show in 44 minutes basically now, or 47 minutes, whatever it is, when you take I, out no, all I the don't. commercials and the music? I think the audience for the show has gone way up because of that, uh, yeah. because you can watch it anytime. I mean, there is still people who won't be up that late. There are still people who are out on Saturday nights that, you know, I, I just think that it's more accessible, but it also has changed the show because everything, you can't just do it and get away with it. Everything has to be calculated because it could be watched by anyone at any time. You know, right. it's not going into the ether. Like you, you know, you watch some of these old sketches, like they knew that this was probably not going to be watched by that many people. And they were just going to say, fuck it. We're doing it. Yeah, that's true. I think over the last 10 years, the one of the things they've really missed, and they've done it a little bit in some of the stuff, either like rehearsal sketches or um, you know, like dress rehearsal, whatever. They'll put some of those online. And I think they should have really leaned into that because I think what they forgot with the show, they were treating it like it was just this 90-minute show that was just on network TV and you had to watch it, you had to be there. But that's not how people consume content now especially when you have all of these cast members and you have all this trial and error that goes in the show. Mm -hmm. That's such a cool way to just throw stuff out into the world and see what hits and what doesn't hit. Like there was a couple first take sketches they did that they ended up not running on the real show for whatever reason that were fucking great yeah. and became a thing in sports, like on in the uh, social media sports community of just like, look how funny this is where like first take, the real first takes acknowledging that the sketch and it wasn't even on the show. And I, I think, I, I don't know why they haven't leveraged the digital side of, of some of this stuff more. I mean, for those who don't know, they do two shows on Saturday night. They do a dress rehearsal. Then Lauren makes some tweaks and they cut things for time and make, you know, adjustments. And then the live show. It's like a four hour dress rehearsal sometimes. So it's like 12 sketches. If they put the dress rehearsal on Hulu or Peacock the next day or Monday morning, I would watch the shit out of that. Me too. Awesome. It's great. If you're a fan, and I know why Lauren doesn't do it. You know, it's his process, whatever. He's been doing this a long time. But it would be amazing. Every comedy nerd would watch that. I think one of the biggest digital missed opportunities, and it's funny because they've tried it a bunch of ways. I remember when they signed the deal with Yahoo and all the sketches were on Yahoo. Mm -hmm. Now it's on Peacock, but it's not really on Peacock because they're basically like these mutilated there are these shows where they're like 30 minute shows any sketch that has music they can't use any musical act they can't use the biggest missed opportunity to me is this you know 50 season Saturday Night Live digital epicenter where it's like every sketch it's every dress rehearsal it's every musical act just go and get all the I mean this show one of the great things about it is it's catching all these musical acts at the absolute peak of their powers, whatever year it was, you can just go through. They run those 10 o'clock episodes on NBC at night, right? And they're amazing. Like, I'm sure they'll run, I don't know what, I don't know if this is official, but Coolio died this week. Coolio had an awesome show. I think Danny Aiello was the host, it was 96, and Coolio like crushed it. Played two songs. Gangster Paradise was the second song, but he crushed it. I'm sure they're gonna play it and people are gonna watch it and be like, wow, that was amazing. None of this stuff lives online. Right. These really, really, really crucial, important musical moments. Like they've had Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Simon and Garfunkel reunion and Rolling Stones, and they're just, they're nowhere. Yeah. The holiday stuff where it's like Bruce Springsteen doing a Christmas song. Like they could totally package that up. There should be TikTok for SNL. 
It just yeah. keeps serving you up sketches and you can swipe or you can watch and you can swipe and your algorithm will know, oh, you're a Will, you're a Will Ferrell guy or you're, you know, you love the 70s. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Let's talk about Lauren. He's made some conflicting statements these past couple months. In this, you know, he did an interview uh, earlier, I think it was in December somewhere, where he basically said that, he said, I'd like to see that through. He's talking about the 50th anniversary. And I have a feeling that'd be a really good time to leave. But here's the point. I won't want the show ever to be bad. I care too deeply about it. It's been my life's work. And then Keenan Thompson did an interview basically saying that the show should end when Lauren retires because he thinks that they're going to try to cut the budget. SNL is very expensive for network TV. Yep. And that he would rather the show die than be trimmed down and you know not be good. And then Lauren gives this New York Times interview this past week where he says, I have no plans to retire even after the 50th anniversary in 2023, 2024. What do you think is going on there? I think it's really hard to leave. I've discussed this on my pod. I forget who told me this. It was either about David Stern or Lauren or somebody else. When you're in that position of power and authority and reach, and you can get anyone on the phone in one second, the moment you don't have that job, you can't. And he knows it. I think Lauren is the most self-aware of his position in life and what that show means and it's just not going to be the same. I watched it happen with David Stern when he was, guess what happened when he wasn't the commissioner anymore? Wasn't important anymore. You know, he was just former commissioner, David Stern, and that was it. And you're just not the same, it, you know, Adam Silver right now, anyone's returning his call. Are they going to return his call when he's not the commissioner? Yeah. Same thing when you're an owner in sports, you own a team, you're the man in your city. You're everything runs through you. You sell the team. You're just another rich guy. So I think, I think for that, there's a piece of that with Lauren. I, To me, the fact that nobody challenged the show in a real significant way is one of the reasons he's still there. Because I think the show was vulnerable the last few years. I was amazed that another network didn't go after it. I was even more amazed that Netflix didn't try to go after, like put a show up Friday night, basically modeled a little bit after SNL, same kind of thing with with comedians and music, but just get the jump on a day early on all the stories from the week and all this stuff. I thought that idea was sitting there. I also think when you say Keenan is where they think the show's going to get canceled, I think one of the streamers would pick the show up in five seconds and yeah. and spend the money on it. So I don't I don't think SNL goes away. The no, question is who's going to run it? Who runs right. it after Lauren? I always thought it was going to be Seth Meyers, but you know, he's older now and I, I don't, he's he's got a great gig already and I just don't, I don't see him doing it. So is it Colin Jost? I, I don't know. You know, the dark horse here, and I've heard, I've asked this question for people at SNL, insiders there. The dark horse is Michael Che, who is sort of low-key a decider there. And people go to him for decisions. Mm. And he's seen as a Lorne whisperer of, you know, what the the young culture cares about in a way. You know, Lauren's a 77-year-old man at this point. It's sort of amazing he's able to do a show that even has any relevance to young people. 
And, yeah. you know, I know the relevance to young people is not what it once was. It's certainly not part of youth culture anymore. It's it's always kind of been mainstream after that initial cast. But just the fact that it can be somewhat relevant is a testament to Lauren really listening to people on the staff. And I think someone like Che or Colin Jost, Tina Fey would be amazing. And, I, you know, people said she wasn't She's not interested. Gonna do it. Yeah. But I think I think she would listen. I think she would listen if they gave her a good offer on what to do. I don't think anyone's going to ever be Lorne in the sense that all decisions come through him and he is the ultimate decider. I think what they may try to do is Lorne will bring on sort of an official apprentice after that 50th year and it will be kind of unspoken. But if Lorne were to ever get hit by a bus or whatever, then that person would be considered the heir apparent. I think we will. And he's never been willing to have that. Well, because he's smart. I mean, that's like, uh, <laughs> that's that's some, if you read stuff about people in power, they never want their replacements sitting there. And that yeah. was a big thing when I was at ESPN, like Skipper never wanted a right-hand man because the moment you have a right-hand man, that person could potentially take your job. This is the whole Bob Iger thing, right? right? Anytime he had somebody underneath him, he would basically vanquish that person so they couldn't take his job. When you're the CEO of a publicly traded company that's sort of malpractice but that's a separate thing lauren knows that's what that's what they do and that's lauren's never had the person who could potentially take his job sitting there i think the closest was probably seth i thought seth was gonna before seth got that uh 12 30 show i thought seth was gonna be the next guy and i thought it was gonna happen after sno 40 but then he got the show and that was that well and guess who produces that show right lauren michaels guess who produces fallon lauren michaels guess who produces a lot of these SNL people's shows. Lauren does because he keeps them in the family. It's it's like a mafia. And no one's going to ever come after the king if, you know, uh, uh, come after the dawn if you're getting paid and getting opportunities. Right. And just to be clear, I revere Lauren Michaels. Oh, of I course. Think, I think he has had one of the most influential careers in pop culture. He's certainly been one of the biggest influences that I've had. Like if, it was, if I was doing a... Uh, expansion protection draft of just people in pop culture I would keep. He would be in the top 10. It's just at some point, everything has to end, right? And I, I think he has to decide, can it end on his terms? And also, does he have a feel for how to reflect the culture? I mean, they, if you go back and you read any of the SNL books or any of the stories from the 70s, the reason he was the right person for the job at the time was because there was this comedy culture that was changing. The people that was were in comedy were... Um, were just different than the Smothers Brothers era. And Lauren saw it and he saw who was going to be the next generation and what what was going to be funny. And he jumped on it and grabbed the real estate. And that was that. He obviously is not going to be able to do that anymore at age 77. I, I guess the question for me is, does SNL reflect the culture anymore? Because we know the ratings are huge, but we also know like those Chicago Fire and Chicago PD, like those ratings are huge too. I've never accurately found out what, the demo is of the show because I know my kids don't care about it. You know, that if there's a musical act, they might go on Hulu and watch it. The music it. helps a lot. The music helps a lot. And it helps when like Pete Davidson and Chalamet did that skeet skeet sketch. They'll, they'll have like three of those a year that will resonate with the under 25. But but really like that generation's on TikTok and YouTube and that's where they're getting their comedy. Well, but SNL does YouTube and TikTok parodies now. I mean, I think right. the the genius of Lorne has always been this ability to straddle all audiences. It is a mainstream show. Your Republican father can watch this show and think it's funny and your 
kid in high school can, you know, probably not watch it all the time. But if he sees something on TikTok, he's going to think it's funny. And, oh, that came from SNL. Honestly, it's the only show like that. And it's been the only show like that really since Friends, I think. I think right. Friends was the last show. I remember I was dating somebody in the mid-90s and she was living at home and went over to her house and we would watch the Thursday night lineup with her parents, you know, and, the, and like nobody's doing that now, you know, and SNL is like the one show that kind of belongs to all ages. Right. But, and I think that has been a Lorne sensibility and people say, Oh, he's secretly a Republican or that. I don't, I don't know that. I think he's got a old school populist gut and he yeah. looks at the big picture and says, okay, what is the farmer in, you know, Iowa going to think of this? And what is the, hip kid in East LA going to think of this. And well, cause he's Canadian. So he thinks of it a little, <laughs> a little less. So this year the repertory players are, you know, they have Che and Joe's the weekend update, mm. Mikey day, who's been there a while, Chloe Feynman, Heidi Gardner, who I think is great. I yep. like, if you, if you put Heidi Gardner and Kristen Wiig next to each other, I, I honestly think they're, they're just as talented. Ego's still on there. Cecily Strong came back. She's another one who I think is, you know, she she's like on year nine or year ten was probably time. And then Bone Yang is now a feature guy. And right. then they have eight um featured players, including four new ones they hired. And the only one that's really hit is the guy who plays Biden and Trump, James Austin Johnson. Right. Who's fantastic. Who's like but he, he's but he does that Daryl Hammond. Yeah, he's a Daryl Hammond type. Totally. And it is an amazing Trump and an amazing Biden. Uh I don't know that this that that is so far going to make him a star. I mean, I don't what do you do with that outside of SNL? Um, which has been the Daryl Hammond problem all along, and he ultimately came back as the announcer. <laughs> I mean, SNL has had, I, I think, a blind spot on youth culture from the diversity standpoint. I mean, it took them forever. Oh, my God. Uh, they, I mean, they were horrible at it. Right. Now, I think that's that they've sort of been dragged into that, and they are much better about it. But from what I have heard on the show is that Lorne defers a lot to the culture stuff. Like what is okay, what is not okay, what will get the show criticized, what will not. And that to me is a very smart thing for a 77-year-old who has come up in a comedy culture that is completely different from the comedy culture of today. The question is, does so it I make it a that. better a better show or a worse show? Because you look at someone like Rob Schneider, Rob Schneider said the show is over after Kate McKinnon saying hallelujah after Hillary lost that it that it, SNL showed its cards and it can never be for everybody again. I disagree with that, but I think that sentiment may be out there. I think it's fair. I th when you talk about reflecting the culture, you know, I like Craig's generation, producer Craig. I feel like there's a lot of leeway with the, with some jokes and some sketches they could do that I'm not sure they've done. It seems like they're very afraid to make fun of anything under that that matters to people under 30. Whereas in the old days, that was the wheelhouse of the show. They were constantly poking fun, wink, wink at whatever was in the culture. And I don't know if they do that anymore. Now it's like poking fun at celebrities or I don't know, they do weekend update stuff. Weekend update has become to me the most interesting part of the show. I really like Che and Jost. I think those guys are good together and I think their jokes are funny. And they're, they're in that weird zone of they just kind of get everyone's on their side with the jokes. Nobody's taking it too personally, so they can really explore the studio space. Well, half the jokes are about how Colin Jost is white and rich yeah, yeah, it's and, funny yeah. though. Uh, or they married to Scarlett Johansson. Right, that's a totally different perspective from you know SNL has always had that Harvard Lampoon 
sensibility, which is a very male Northeastern sensibility. You see sketches now that are absolutely from a female perspective or yes. from, you know, they're, they're from a, um, you know, from a black perspective, you show, you know, a sketch like black jeopardy there are, yes. that is from a black perspective and not something that the SNL of the eighties or nineties would have ever done. Well, you think like you mentioned the two TikTok sketches. This is what I mean with the like producer Craig's generation. I thought those sketches were great. My kids, I showed both, I showed them both of those sketches and they thought they were great. And they were like, why doesn't the show do more stuff like this? Like this is now you're making fun of things in my life, but it's really hard to do that. If the people running the show have skewed a little older and, and, you know, they definitely default to the celebrity stuff. Impersonations always win, right? Repeatable sketches and impersonations became kind of the bread and butter in about the mid nineties. But they don't do repeats anymore. Well, that would be great. I, I don't believe it. I mean, there was a time in the early 90s when you looked forward to church chat every week. Well, the cheerleaders, cheerleaders was when it went over the top. Yeah. yeah in the early 90s, or sorry, the early 2000s, it was, no, late 90s, it was cheerleaders every week. I still think they repeat some stuff. I mean, the Kate McKinnon UFO thing. How many oh, times that's did right. they do yeah. that? Right. How many times have they done the Keenan, what's up with that? And that's true. That's true. Stuff I like guess that. I just don't like those as much. <laughs> or the people that come on Weekend Update and it's basically the same thing. Or like right. the 80 Bryant Bone Yang one where they're right. to get, like they did that like four times. I think the problem is when stuff really hits, like Stefan did, right. then they're always trying to chase that. But you go back and you look at Stefan, you have Hader, who's you know one of the best cast members of this century. And then you have John Mulaney running the sketches, who is either the best stand-up comic or in the top three right now. It's just like an embarrassment of riches. I, I'm interested in the Please Don't Destroy guys this season as somebody. Like, I know Apatow's working on a movie with them, and mm -hmm. I think those guys have the potential to blow up. And I really think, for better and worse, they're going to lean in Bo and Yang, and I think they're going to try to make him the star of the show. And you think we'll so? see. I do, and we'll see. We'll see. Does... Does he have layers to him or is he just playing like one or two of the same versions of characters on the show? Or is he going to be able to step it up or not? Could he be like a Will Ferrell guy? I, don't, I personally don't think so. I think, you know, remember when they tried to make Taron kill him like they're Sudeikis and mm -hmm. he just never could totally get there. It's really hard to find those guys who can be in everything. I like Taron Killam. I thought he was great. I was surprised when he didn't get asked back. Yeah, he was... He was what eighty percent there with the like of like the Phil Hartman Sudeikis type. He was like a level below, but I still felt like he was valuable. Yeah, totally. I don't know what happened with that. Totally. Um, all right, are you still long on Pete Davidson? I know you 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 were on the record saying you think Pete's going to have a good career after SNL. You think he's? Are there any stars that are going to come out of this class? Any legitimate stars? Pete was really important last year on the SNL because he gave it a level of uh, something. Zeitgeist. He has a movie right now with Kaylee Cuoco. Meet cute. Craig and I have been texting about the trailer. It's on. It's on Peacock <laughs> or Paramount. It's it's on one of those streamers and nobody even knows it's on. Please tell and me asked, you haven't watched it. If you've watched it, then you officially have, you watch everything. I did not watch it. And I asked my daughter if she watched it and she was like, nah, I don't want to watch that. And I was like, oh, it's over for Pete Davidson. If my daughter is like, there's a rom-com with Pete Davidson and I'm watching like that do anything show on Netflix. My daughter was like, watch that the first week, but I was surprised that the Pete Davidson rom-com kind of came and went. It made me nervous. I thought Staten Island 
King of Staten Island, I thought was a good movie. I thought it was, was a it good though, use of him. Or were, or were we all just in the pandemic, just desperate for something? Maybe I need to watch it again. I remember really <laughs> liking the last 40 minutes though, with the, with Buscemi and the, and sure. uh, the firefighters. I thought that was actually the most interesting part of the movie for me, but. So anyone else, I feel like we went through the Kate McKinnon rise stardom and then sort of downswing while she was on SNL. She did that Tiger King show. That was a flop. She just fired her agents and went to CAA. Well, let me ask you a question. Was she was she ever really a star? I feel like when they hired her for Ghostbusters, that was those were the four hottest female stars in comedy at the moment. It was McCarthy, Wig, McKinnon, Leslie Jones. And I feel like that was a, a moment for her. And since then, and she had a bunch of other movies where, that she was in. I think ultimately she will settle into a character actor role. She will never be a big star. Well, but she the will... worst case, like it's there's like the Sherry O'Terry, you go that way. You could go the Molly Shannon way, where Molly Shannon, I think, has become a really good character actress. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think anyone's building something around Kate. You know, and I I was always when they were always talking about what a big star she was, I was like, is she or is she just the best person on SNL right now? I don't because ultimately to me, a star is like all right, if that person's going to be in a movie, I'm going. I think Kate could have her version of Barry or Ted Lasso. Interesting. Okay. I do. I think she's good and she's good and people like her. Like my my dad loves Kate McKinnon. Like tuned in just for her on SNL. And I think she's known enough. She will get another chance. They will CAA will put together a show for her that will be a showcase where she will write and she will perform that'll be her chance. If that doesn't work, because the Tiger King show was an awful choice that she should have never done bad. that. Well, yeah. like think about Sudeikis for years and years. Did not make the right choices for him, right? He did a couple movies, but- Rom-coms and- Right, he exactly. Just, he tried to be like a, like a traditional leading man, a little like some of the choices Chevy made back in the day, like those totally. seems like old times kind of movies. And then he figured it out with Ted Lasso and he figured out how to have creative control. So you think like- that's the last great cast where you have Hader and you have Seth Meyers and you have Sudeikis and you have Kristen Wiig and you have Tina Fey and Amy Poehler kind of overlapping for a couple of years. And then Will Forte, who I don't think is a star on the level of those people, but he was the star of a couple of movies and Armisen who people like, and you know, it, it, we feel like we knew all of those people. That That's the thing from the last 10 years. Some of these people, I, I don't even have a, Melissa Villasenor, who I thought was talented. Like, I don't have a feel for her. No, there was one of the names, Aristotle, whatever. I didn't even know who, yeah. I could not pick that guy out of a lineup. Yeah, well, they that'll happen sometimes where the people will be the one and dones. Right. And you're like, oh yeah, I saw him waving in the credits a couple like of times. Like the goat boy, the goat boy guy, remember him? Jim Brewer, but Jim Brewer, Jim Brewer had, he had a couple big things. Like he had the Joe Pesci show. Right. Yeah. But he was one and done, right? Didn't he get fired after he, a year? He might've been, well, Steve Carell's wife was a one and done. Oh, right. Nancy Walls. Nancy Walls. But then she went on to the Daily Show. There was a couple from the 2000s, like the Jerry Minor, those type of guys that kept trying to cycle in. I mean, at least the show's way better with diversity now. I think- you know, when you look back and you think that moment the show had where Keenan's like, I'm not wearing a dress anymore. And, right. I can no, I cannot play. Oh my Oprah. God. That yeah. was a horrible situation that they were able to get out of. So I don't right. know. I'm optimistic. I'm more interested in the show this year because it does feel like they're rebooting it and reinventing it. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. If they're just bringing celebrities back and the celebrities are in half of the sketches, it's going to be like, oh man.
Yeah, I don't think like they, they will. just don't get it. I don't think they will. I, I think I think opening on tomorrow night it'll be a Mar-a-Lago sketch with the guy who plays Trump, and yeah. they will have all the the you know the new players mixed in on that. Before I go, can I say hi to the town's biggest fan, Reese Witherspoon? <laughs> Reese, <Yeah. laughs> we love your support. Please write B- Kate McKinnon in the Big Little Lies season four. She if Reese just did an interview with Hollywood Reporter in which she said, I was listening to an industry podcast the other day and they were going over the box office hits of the summer, which we did that. So thanks, yes. Reese. Uh, you have an open invite. You can come on the show, talk about all of your amazing projects. Come on, Reese. Come on the show. We could also do it. We could do a showrunner draft. I mean, Reese could, Reese could yeah. uh, offer her thoughts there. I'm really proud of this podcast, though. I think we we started talking about it a while ago and it it came out exactly... I mean, this part, this episode, of course, is probably the one of the longest ones you've done, but like that sweet spot of 25, 30 minutes and trying to appeal to people in the industry who don't have a ton of time to listen to stuff. I, I just think you've done a great job. Oh, I love you. this podcast. Number one compliment I get is, love your podcast. It's so short. That's great. <laughs> Leave them wanting more. <laughs> All right, Bill Simmons, TheRinger.com, The Ringer Podcast Network. Uh, ubiquity. You are you are the Oprah to all of my friends. I appreciate it. Thank you for making a special appearance on this pod. And you know, and you know, I love this pod because I allowed producer Craig on it, and he's one of my favorites. So Craig anytime is the I MVP. bestow Craig, anytime I bestow Craig on a project, you know it matters. The the other thing that people always say is more Craig. Got to have more Craig. Craig's, Craig's great. He is the cowbell of this podcast. You can hear him on the hottest take. <laughs> doing his acting take this week about how anyone could act. It was an elite, an elite hottest take. Amazing. And if you haven't listened to the four and a half hour episode of the rewatchables about boogie nights, it is yeah. worth all four and a half hours. It is fantastic. It is apex mountain for the rewatchables. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Good to see you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, you've seen bros, the Billy Eichner movie. I have. I have not seen it. It is opening this weekend. It has been touted as the first studio comedy featuring an all LGBTQ cast. And it has been marketed and promoted as that. Uh, The tracking for this movie, not great. On the high side, it could get to 10 million. On the low side, maybe eight. I actually think my prediction is going to be that it underperforms. I don't think this movie was marketed properly, and I think it's going to be coming probably around seven, maybe eight million. What do you mean by it wasn't marketed properly? So a lot of the promotion, and some of this comes from, not some, a lot, most of it comes from Billy Eichner himself, who I am a big fan of. I, I love Billy Eichner. I know him a little bit. I've seen him at parties over the year and chatted with him. Um, I just feel like when people are deciding whether to go to a movie, and especially a comedy, they want them. They want to be funny. They want to be told this is the funniest movie you will see. They don't want to be told that this movie is important or this movie is groundbreaking. That has been the messaging from Billy Eichner and to a certain extent from Universal, the studio as well. I mean, he went on. They paid for him to go on The Bachelor and promote it to that audience. And the messaging was: you need to see this movie because it's important. I just don't think people go to movies for that reason. Yeah, you want that to be the takeaway organically, that you leave the movie thinking, wow, that was an important movie. I don't know if you want to be told that going in. Um, That's something that you can reflect on after you have seen it. And you kind of want to let the movie speak for itself. 
Totally. I mean, Bridesmaids, perfect example. The marketing wasn't, this is a, you know, go see this movie to support female comics. It was, this movie is fucking funny and you will love it because someone takes a shit in the sink. Yeah. I think what you said, I think both can be true. I think this movie will be critically well-reviewed and I, I probably agree with you that it will underperform. I'm not oh, it's sure. At 95, it's-, it's at 95% of Rotten Tomatoes. Like that's the thing. This movie is actually considered pretty good. I liked it. You saw it. You liked it. I haven't seen it. Um, and I think that this is universal. It's admirable that they went all in on this movie, that they took an all LGBTQ cast and they are giving it a full marketing spend to try to generate a real box office number out of this movie. And it's unfortunate that it doesn't look like it's going to perform. But I think that the the messaging was a little off here, that they, they could have leaned more into... Now, it may be the case that a rom-com starring Billy Eichner is never going to be a hit and that they were just leaning in to try to get the core audience to turn out. And if it's a bi-coastal, urban, non, not necessarily mainstream audience, then that's fine. They just needed those people to turn out. But from the level of marketing on this movie and the level of commercials and, and ad buys, they took it to the Toronto Film Festival. They took it, they did a bunch of promotion for this movie. It seemed like they thought they could get to a bigger number than they are likely going to get to. Is there always kind of an even balance between how a movie is expected to perform with how much they spend in marketing? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, they have formulas. They have people whose job it is to look at what they have, look at the comps, meaning similar type movies and how they performed in theaters, and then to come up with a, an appropriate marketing spend to get the movie to where they think they need to get it to. And there's a lot of opportunities for this movie to make money. You know, Universal has a very strong um, at-home component to their releases. They have premium video on demand pretty shortly after it's in theaters. This movie will probably perform on streaming because it it does have a core audience of of Billy on the Street fans. But comedy is a challenge genre in theaters. We've talked about this on the show before. So it's no guarantee that any comedy is going to do well. It was a big risk that Universal decided that this movie deserved a theatrical release and deserved the kind of marketing promotion push that it gave it. Yeah, We'll see if it has nationwide appeal, but I agree with you that I I think it will be well received by perhaps certain areas. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank Bill Simmons for coming on. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, and I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.